This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here again today with another great episode for you. Today, we're going to talk about math. I know everybody loves math. I'm a little bit of a spreadsheet dork, I have to admit. Uh, back in 2008, I was getting my MBA at Rockers University here in Kansas City. And I was also working at Jackson County as a financial analyst on uh, tax incentive projects, commercial real estate projects. And I really got into the spreadsheets, really kind of dorked out on them and still work on spreadsheets today. But what I find the problem sometimes is with spreadsheets is you see these ratios and these percentages and these, you know, big words like reversion value and like, what what the heck is that? And... I felt like there was a lot of misinformation out, out there on the internet back what has been 12 years ago when I learned this stuff. So I feel like there's still a, a lot of misinformation or, or maybe rudimentary explanations for some of these complex terms. So I figured I might as well go through them today here and teach you guys to fish as far as financial underwriting, financial modeling. I'll have some other podcasts and Zooms on actually going through some spreadsheets. But today I want to just cover kind of 30,000 foot view, what are the top 10 formulas or financial terms and ratios that you need to know if you're going to be a real estate investor, especially if you're going to be a real estate syndicator. Some of these provisions and terms are just purely for the investment side, but if you're going to start syndicating, you really got to get a good grasp of this. You need your spreadsheets to be accurate, and you need your contracts to be accurate, you need your private placement memorandums to be accurate, and you need to be able to articulate how the deal works if you ever think you're going to get a loan approval. And a lot of times, you know, there's some bankers out there that are really sharp, but there's also a lot of bankers out there that are very rudimentary, and this is kind of outside their lane, um, especially some smaller banks. So you got to be able to articulate it uh, with precision and confidence and, of course, accuracy in order to, to win the deal. I've been in front of a lot of loan committees and loan officers, and sometimes they tell you no. And sometimes they tell you no, not because you don't get it, but because they don't get it. And that's tough. But I mean, I think there's an old saying, like, if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't know it well enough. So today I'm going to try to explain this well. And if I can't do it and you're still, you know, confused as mud, then, um, well, sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I'm trying here. All right. Let me jump into the 10 key metrics. We got net operating income. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide on the show notes these definitions and these names. So you don't have to write all this down. Just, just listen and learn. Number two, debt service, which is also kind of 2B, debt service, service coverage ratio, DSCR, or debt coverage ratio, DCR. Number three, cash flow. Everybody cares about that one, right? Number four, preferred return. Your investors care about that one. Number five, cash on cash, return on investment. Number six is the waterfall or the, the general partner slash limited partner split. Number seven is the internal rate of return. I feel like this is like the the mystical mystical fantasy formula that everybody knows how to do in Excel, but nobody really understands. Not nobody, but a lot of people. 
Um, I didn't understand. Nobody taught me how to teach myself, and I just had to see it and watch it and learn it in real life. Number eight, reversion, uh, which is basically your sale price um, at the end of year 10, which we'll get into. Number nine, capitalization rate or cap rate. Uh, and number 10, equity multiple. So I'm going to rattle off some definitions here, and I'm gonna, and the ones that are more complicated I'm going to dive into and explain a little bit more. So first off, right out of the gate, net operating income. I think everybody knows what this one is, right? It's the amount by which operating revenue exceeds operating expenses without taking debt service into account. And we, the reason properties trade or sell on an, an NOI is because we all get different financing terms. I may, If we're both buying a million-dollar property, I may buy it for a million cash. You may buy it for zero down and million-dollar loan. Well, our cash-on-cash returns can be different, but our net operating income is, is the same if we operate the same. We have the same number. We've got you know, one unit times 200 bucks times 12 months at 2400 If our expense ratio is 50%, that's $1,200. we got $1,200 net operating income. Okay, debt service. This is obvious, too, the payment of principal and interest due on the existing debt. The debt service coverage ratio, that's your NOI divided by your total debt service. And lenders care about this. Um, you can put it in your spreadsheet for your own edification and feel warm and fuzzy that you got some DCR that's 2.0 or something. But typically, banks want a minimum of 1.2, a ratio of 1.2 over 1 for net operating income over total debt service. So I'm looking at a spreadsheet right here. I'll just tell you real quick. This is a small deal I've got um, in Iowa. NOI is 44000 in year one. Debt service is 30000 and change. So the DC, DCR is 1.46. So the next year it goes 1.56, 1.67, 1.78. Okay, that is bankable because it, because the, the, the asset covers the note and then some. And the ratios banks want are anywhere from 1.2 to 1.5. Some banks will do a stress test, you know, which is basically manipulating your assumptions in a negative manner to see if you can still maintain that 1.2 DCR. Number three, cash flow. This is the difference in the amount of cash available at the beginning of a period and the amount at the end of the period. Basically, this is NOI minus debt, ser- minus debt service equals cash flow from operations. There's other cash flow that is not from operations, you know, interest and things like that. We'll get into perhaps another episode, but I'm not going to get it too much in the minutiae here today. Um, number four, preferred return. This is, you've probably seen this like an eight pref is a common term. And what that basically means is that's a profit distribution preference where one class of equity gets paid before another. So like on this deal I'm looking at, if I'm going to promote this, I'm going to say, okay, my investors get an eight pref and they get the first eight. If, they pay, if the investors put $100,000 in, they get the bank gets paid first. So preferred preferred return, preferred equity is, is junior to bank bank debt. But if the bank, if the deal makes $100,000, the, the, uh, Class B shareholders of my private placement random, who are my limited partner equity equity providers, they get an 8% preferred return, $8,000, before I get a penny. Then we get into the number, number, I'm saying number six, I'm skipping one here, the waterfall, the GPLP split. And if I'm the GP, let's say it's, let's say it's 30, 70, uh, which means I get 30%, and then the investor gets 70, there's 8,000 going to them, there's 92,000 left if we, for distrib- distribution, times 0.3, that's 27,600 that comes to me. The delta, 64,400, that goes to the LPs. Um, basically, that's what it is. It's a waterfall. And you can have different, or hurdle is another term. You can have different hurdles. You could say, okay, it's 30, 70 until 
the IRR or some other metric gets to 15%, and then it goes 50-50 or something like that. This is all negotiable. People always ask me, and I, I was asking people, and I went around, I did my first syndication, was asking anybody that would listen, you know, hey, how are you guys doing this? What's the industry standards? And it's, it's really, it depends. If you got a $100 million project, it's probably closer to, you know, 2080. If you got a, you know, a small deal like this one I'm looking at here, if I was to syndicate this, it may be 70 for me, 30 for the investor. Or you could even put in a cap. Um, I've started putting some caps in my syndications, to be honest, because I, I had a couple where, you know, my share was supposed to be like a million. And we overperformed and did the project in half the time and twice as good, not twice as good, but 25% better in half the time. So the IRR is through the roof. And now my investors are getting like an 80, which great. They love me, but dang, I left a half million dollars on the table for myself. So now I'm starting to put caps in, which investors don't probably care for. But a cap, if this cap's a 30, they don't get that much hair on it because like, dude, nobody else would give me a 30. So I can say, hey, 80, 8% prep, 30 for me, 70 for you, but once you hit a 30 IRR, the rest is mine, which really ends up making it more like 40, 60, 60, 40, in some instances as high as 90, 10. But hey, you get into 30 IRR, you know, when you're bringing up partners, I had a, a friend and mentor who he turned a company from zero to six billion in, in revenue, and he's worth a ton of money. And he told me there's, there's two types of partner there's the type of partner that cares how much money is in their own pocket. And there's a type of partner that cares how much money is in your pocket. And the ideal partner or limited limited partner investor is the guy that says, I don't care how much money you make. I hope you make a gazillion dollars. But I just want to make sure that I'm getting what I deserve and what I think, what I negotiated for. And that can all be structured in your PPM. So anyway, that's that's just kind of some, some sidebar on choosing investors. Okay, back to number five. We're going in the wrong order here, but I'm kind of in charge, so... Deal with it, I guess. Number five, cash on cash ROI. This is the percentage return derived from dividing cash flow by the initial cash outlay. Okay, that's pretty obvious. I gave the example of, uh, okay, sixty-four thousand four hundred plus the investors got eight thousand, so their total IR, their total cash flow, is seventy-two thousand four hundred. If it took a uh, million dollars to invest in this deal. You divide that by a million. That's seven point two percent. Now I combine their cash on cash full return on investment, which included the pref return and the distribution for the LP in the waterfall. You could do numerous submetrics like cash on cash ROI from operations, cash on cash global, which is the cash on cash global is is kind of, it, it gets into the next one, internal rate of return. And this is one of the more confusing ones. The definition is the average annual rate of return earned through the life of an investment. You know, this takes into account overall cash flows, debt pay down, and the reversion value. So I'm going to jump to number eight, the reversion value, and then come back. When you're trying to compare an, an apple to an apple, you need to have similar time horizons. So the IRR calculation, and in, in, in through a process that's called the discounted cash flow analysis, what it really does is it tries to bring things to normality and make them uniform. And it does that by having a, a forced sale or a reversion on year 10. And typically, the year 10 reversion, it's basically it's the, it's the estimated value of the asset when sold at the end of the 10 years. And it could be any investment holding period, but typically it's 10 years for a spreadsheet. Even if you're the kind of guy that's like, I never sell. My kids are going to own this. My grandkids are going to I get it. I used to have a law client that they, they literally, literally have never sold in like three generations. And there's these massive land barons. Like, I got it, guys. But you need to compare 
it to other like kind of investments so you can make a better decision. So it's the value of an asset when sold. It's derived or calculated by dividing the future estimated NOI by the market cap rate. This is where most people mess up. They do a 10-year pro forma, and they use the 10-year 10, 10 NOI, which is generally leaving some, you know, leaving some money on the table because you're supposed to calculate that 11-year NOI, and you take that NOI divided by the market cap rate. That is your reversion value. That's your sale. Okay, and what is the cap rate? The cap rate, it's the, the percentage at which a future flow of income changes to a present value figure. Okay, a cap rate shows how quickly an investment pays for itself based on operations. So back to the NOI, the NOI was, it was kind of irrespective of any debt service. Um, and the cap rates are similar. So the, 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 this is an easy way to calculate value is there's, it's this little triangle formula. You know, IRV is what I was taught when I was doing appraisal work. Income divided by reversion value, so NOI over uh, price equals cap rate. And then the inverse is NOI over cap rate equals value. So quick math here, $100,000 NOI divided by the cap rate, 10%, so divided by 0.1 equals a million dollars. NOI divided by cap rate equals value or price. And then NOI, 100,000 divided by price, a million dollars, what's that going to be? It's a 10 cap, 10% capitalization rate. So how do we come up with our cap rate? That's how you do it mathematically. But, but if you're looking to purchase a property, or you're in, in this case, we're looking to estimate our reversion value in year 10, well, you have to you pull out your crystal ball and, and say, what, do, what are cap rates going to be at this time frame? And in, in, in today's world, you look at market forces. Like, what are other properties that are similar to this trading force? Like in MHP world, I typically start with an 8. If the property is... Um, more than 50 lots, I drop it 100 basis points, I'm down to a 7. If it's more than 100 lots, I drop it 100 basis points, I'm down to a 6. Okay, if it's got private utilities, like a water sewer that's, that you're responsible for, that's bad. I up it 100 or 200 basis points. If it's got a lot of parkland homes or RVs, I up it even more. If it's a lower quality property, gravel roads or, you know, just rough area, tertiary market, you got to up that cap rate. If it's 500 lots in downtown Denver and it's senior living only and they're all brand new double wides, that's probably going to be like a four cap. Um, if it's $100 below market rent, it might even be a three and a half cap. Okay, so the cap rate's supposed to reflect risk. Um, so you look at market forces into the future, it's kind of uh, crystal ball time. And to some degree, cap rates to a large degree, cap rates float with, with interest rates that the Federal Reserve sets. So if generally cap rates are, you know, a few basis points higher than the interest rates. And now in our current, I say current, last several years environment, it's like there are no interest rates, you know, from a Federal Reserve. So what's the bank producing? If a bank can give you a loan at 4%, which is kind of current current rates, you can buy at a 7 cap and make a 20% cash on cash return inclusive of debt pay down, so really an IRR. Um, some people say cap, cash on cash, but that really it's an IRR if you get into the, the formula there. So to each their own as far as their yield requirement, yield meaning return on investment or yield being, and I usually focus the yield is on the IRR, um, but that's how cap rate works. So back to the IRR. This is, this is kind of the holy grail of financial metrics in my opinion. Again, the definition is the average annual rate of return earned through the life of the investment. Okay, when I started looking at this, I said, what does this really mean? Ever, most people know how to do it in Microsoft Excel. It's equals op, equals IRR open parent, and then you drag all the the cash outlays and inlays. But what, what IRR does is it it takes into account the time value of money, 
um, and the amounts of money. So, for example, I used to teach my appraisers this. I'll see if I can remember my example. Um, when I used to be county assessor, I had I mean, 35 appraisers under me, and, and only a handful, zero to one, understood this. So we had to teach, the, especially the commercial guys. The residential folks didn't need to know as much. But the commercial folks said, okay, here's three different investments. I said, if I was to buy farm ground out on the edge of town for a million dollars, and my, and my cash from the farm ground was you know 2000 a month, that's 2000 times 12 months is 24000 into a million. Those are realistic numbers, by the way, as they were at the time. That's a 2.4% return. I must be a fool. So let's say I, let's say I put put $200,000 down on that. $200,000 down on a million dollars. That's 24000 into 200000 My cash on cash is 12%. Okay, that's not too bad, but it's because I got leverage. Let's go back to the scenario of no leverage. I'm making 2.4%. Why am I doing it? Like, me personally, I don't really want to do that for 12%. Um, and I really don't want to uh, just do it. But what happens if if in five, if in year 10 when we're going to sell, what happens if this the city, here in Kansas City, it expands, and now it comes out to the farm ground? Well, now some residential developer or commercial developer is going to call you and say, hey, your ship just came in. I'm going to buy your farm ground. Well, now I might buy that farm ground for, I may sell that ground, excuse me, for $3 million dollars. So my regular cash on cash was low. My if I paid cash for it, million dollars, I have no debt pay down. I have no leverage. I'm making a 2.4% return. But at the end of the movie, I have a $2 million gain. So my appreciation on my reversion value is high. So that would would could be a very good investment, even though I had almost no cash flow and no principal pay down. So that's that's one of the, you can see where only one of the three metrics was really used, and it impacts your internal return. Another example would be like single-family housing. Single-family housing, I may I'm probably more likely I get a loan for it. By the way, on the farm ground, it's harder to get a loan because it's not going to pencil as well financially. You got to have more down payment typically, or stronger net worth. It's not a pure it's not a pure cash flowing investment. So banks are going to typically be tougher on you. I'm like, let's say I buy ten single-family houses and I buy them for a million dollars. I put two hundred thousand dollars down. Typically. Houses like that, a million dollars, they have a, a 1% rent, that's 10000 um, per month, to 120000 So, basically, homes like that can cash flow in the 10 to 20% range. So, but I have a 30-year amortization on my loan. So my principal pay down on that loan is very, very slow, like de minimis almost. I think it's like 17, I haven't looked at it in a decade, but I think it's like 17% of your first payment is principal and the rest is interest. So you're getting very little principal pay down, okay? But you're getting good cash flow on a monthly basis. But what's your appreciation going to look like? Well, those homes are probably not going to go up that much. They go, single family homes do tend to go up historically, but... They're not going to go up like my farm example. So really, my appreciation is, is, is a combination in there, but it's not as big. The, the cash flow is the king on the single-family residential world. So again, I have three metrics, principal pay down, cash flow, and reversion value, appreciation, to come up with my IRR. The third one in this example is, is a little bit, the second one, the cash flow is a lot. The debt, principal pay down is almost de minimis. That could be a wise investment. Just like the farm was a wise investment, but because of different metrics within the internal rate return. Okay, the third one 
here in Kansas City, there's a lot of government jobs, federal jobs. So there's this place called uh, two Kansas, two Pershing Place and one Pershing Place, and the the IRS is right there. IRS has massive facility. I don't know how big it is. Uh, I want to say like two million square feet. It's one of the biggest facilities in the country, and they have thousands upon thousands of employees that work there. So and it's federally government federal government tenant. So the group that built that, I think it was DST it was the company that built big big company that here in Kansas City that built that. They have a really safe tenant, but because it's so safe, it's it's I don't know I don't know the terms of their lease, but it's likely that that lease on the cash flow perspective. I'm gonna go to lane two. It's likely that it's not spitting out huge cash. It's probably like four percent return, cash on cash, not that good. And then as far as the third component, a appreciation, it really doesn't have much. Those kind of buildings you'd value them using the cost approach probably. There's three approaches to value. Uh, income, sales, and cost. And if it's trade, if it trades mid lease, it's going to be income approach most likely. But if at the end of the at the end of the movie, that's a ten year lease. And at the end of ten years, the IRS does not renew. That building may be functionally obsolete for the next user. This is really common, like on uh, auditoriums or like sports arenas and things like that, or even like an old Walmart building. What's the value of a Walmart building when Walmart leaves? It's just warehouse, you know, not that much. And it doesn't matter what the income what Walmart was producing or even the rent rate that Walmart was paying. So in this IRS building example, the third building appreciation is probably not going to go up much. It's probably going to be less than the cost to build it, frankly. It's going to be, you know, cost less depreciation um, is what that building's going to be worth at the end of 10 years. So why would DST or this big, one of these big sophisticated companies, why would they invest in this? Well, let's look at lane number one, principal pay down. If they got a 10%, if they got a 10-year amortizing loan, they'd pay the building off in 10 years. Well, that facility probably cost $100 million. So they'd have $100 million of equity paid down by the IRS. Now, most likely, because it's a commercial property, they had a longer loan, and they paid a 20-year amortization. But at the end of 10 years, if they had a $100 million building, they've paid that building down considerably. I didn't, I'm just making this up on the fly, so I don't know the number, but call it, they've paid it down to 150, 150 excuse me, from $100 million, they paid the note down to $75 million. That means they now have $25 million of equity. It could be, the, lower, the shorter the amortization, the faster the payments, the more equity you build, just the worse your cash flow is because your debt service is up, right? Um, but that could be a really good investment for capital preservation and or just debt pay down to have you know more liquid or less highly leveraged assets. So hopefully that was clear, but... That's really my way of trying to explain to you the, the three ways you can make money in interim rate return. So in the, back on the spreadsheet, you know, this one here, equity investment minus 250 in the first year. That's the cash that this deal is going to take. Um, in annual cash flow, you go year one, it's going to be negative. You got a big cash outlay. Year two, ooh, cash flow, which, positive, which is, a, which is you know, the, the cash flow on this is uh it's a combination of the prep return payment, which is which prep return payment is two fifty times eight percent is twenty thousand a year, and then any additional cash flow from operations, sale of mobile homes gets you your your global annual cash flow to the investor net of fees. It goes down the line twenty nine thousand change thirty two. Then we got seventy one, so we got a refinance in year four, and then the the debt service goes up with the refinance, so the cash flow actually goes down. 13, 17, 21, 26, 28. At the end of the movie, we have 560K of net sales proceeds, which are 
the sales price, the estimated reversion value at the estimated capitalization rate, less the promoter GP fees, and then you get a return of 100% of the principal. Once you pay back the principal of the investors, the, pref the preferred equity is what it's really called, then you, you have to continue to pay the preferred return until the preferred equity is refunded back to the investors. We, in this example here, on a 10-year hold, and the four-year hold, it gets a lot better, which is a game plan on this, actually. But I do a four-year pro forma, and I do a 10-year pro forma. And they pay back the 250 So the net proceeds of the investor is 560000 which gives them a 20.77% return. So what are the metrics you need? In this case, I think I could fund this deal if I wanted, if I wanted to syndicate this. And I'd, I'd run, it, run them both ways. Sometimes I syndicate them, sometimes I don't, frankly. Um, depends on... My, not my mood. It depends on how much cash I'm sitting on, what I got coming on the pipeline, how big the deal is, what the yield is, um, whether it's too small to even worth messing around with investors. So in this case, I'm going to pay an 8 pref. I'm going to have cash on cash of 10.56, 11.8, 13.13, 28.7 in the first four years. So double-digit cash on cash and an 8 pref, meaning I don't get a penny until the investors get at least their 8. I could probably syndicate it at this. And this is with me taking... 50% uh, of the GP split on the sale of mobile homes, and this is with me taking 80% of the waterfall split at the sale refi. So if I train, so I'm gonna go down the go down the row here, and I'll do. I may also use this one as my next podcast since I'm already kind of getting into some of what these numbers look like. I'll show you guys just on Zoom, but at the end of the movie, I get 20.77. That's because I've that's because I'm taking 80% on the exit, um, which is pretty high to be honest. Um, but I got a heck of a lot of guys on the pipeline that want to invest relative to, you know, I got five deals in a contract, but I could probably fund 20. So I'm not, I don't want to leave a half million dollars on the table like I did last time, to be honest. So if I change that split to 50 only on the exit, well, now the investors get 26.37. I think that's too, I think that's too rich, frankly, you know, for, this is a really down the middle, straightforward deal. If I do 30, promote 30, 30 on these, you know, now the investors, if I'm only taking 30, which is pretty standard, they're making 31% and getting a pref, and my assumptions are very conservative. Um, and I'm not even counting, by the way, in this deal that it comes with 12 acres of development ground. This is going to be, uh, I'm going to try to, I'm going to resplit it, and I'm going to make do single family. I'm going to get entitlements for single family and make mansions because it's really a fluent area of Iowa. And... And then I'm going to sell it off. So that's all cherry on top. But I don't know if I can get it pulled off. So I'm not going to like put my reputation on line of my investors. Because it, realistically, with a, with a 30% cap, I'll hit that cap for them. And I'll get that extra. I'll get most of that extra money um, if I over-deliver. So that's how I'm setting them up nowadays. So anyway, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Number 10, equity multiple. What is the equity multiple? Well, in this example, the equity multiple is, you know, in this example, it's 5.08. That's because I just... You bastardize my own numbers. If I go back to 50% on the park homes and 80% split on the sale refi, the equity multiple to my investors is 3.31 on this transaction. What does that mean in, in English? Okay, it's the ratio of equity to total net profits plus the total equity invested divided by the total equity invested. Basically, it's how much money they put in plus their profit divided by how much money they put in. It just tells them over the life cycle of this investment. In this example, this 10-year hold, they're going to put their money in. It's going to, net of all my fees, it's going to grow 3.3 times. So some investors care about the equity multiple. Some banks care more about the DCR. 
everybody seems to care about the IRR. LPs should certainly care about both the preferred return and the waterfall. But last point for today, you know, this is all spreadsheet stuff. If you're going to be an LP, really what's most important is know who your operator is and, and, and know who you're getting in bed with. You know, I, I put some money in with some guys that I really trust before as an LP, and it worked out well. I've been co-GP or LP on other deals. I'm an LP on, a, on, um, on five mobile home parks. I sold one of them, and I'm still in five of them as an LP because I was like requirement of the sale. And the promoters are a nightmare. They're breaking SEC regs. They're breaking IRS regs. They're breaking loan covenants. They're breaking operating agreement covenants. I, I don't see a financial report ever. They're mismanaging the properties. And in that case, I didn't really choose them. It was kind of like I threw in some of the cash at my sale because it was a requirement. And it was all like, quote, extra cash because I thought they were overpaying me. So I was willing to do it. And I thought, how badly can these guys screw this up? Well, they're screwing it up badly. So... It's a matter of time till I come around, get get a minute, dig into that operating agreement and PPM, which they didn't even do properly, frankly. And I, you know, I, I squeeze in and say, hey, Merry Christmas, guys. I'm here to take over your deal. But um, that could happen, by the way. If you're a promoter and you're not following your operating agreement PPM, you could get pushed off your own ship. So you got to be careful who you're getting in bed with. But understanding these metrics is going to be crucial for you in as an as an LP in understanding what's going on with your money, but as a GP in understanding how to cut the best deal for you, but also a fair deal for your investors and be able to articulate it as I, hopefully I have done today so that you can get loan approval. Till next time, God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.